what that exchange was between Lynn and me the last time um, I accused him of taking my Bible. And he's doing penance for it today. <laughs> Let me see. Okay, let's pray together. <clears throat> Lord, we thank you that we can uh, worship you and give our hearts to you in glad praise for all you've done for us. We pray now that you would help us as we look at your word. Uh, change us by it, we ask. Uh, show us wonderful things from your law, as the psalmist tells us. I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be acceptable in your sight. And I pray that you would give me favor with those that hear. Uh, conform us to the image of Christ, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Football season is well underway, and the Eagles are doing well. Four and O. Oh. The Packers, not so good. They're two and two. And uh, the Panthers, O oh and four. Well, those teams and all the other NFL teams share more than just records. They also share a way of doing things. Um, you know how it works. When a team gets the ball, then the quarterback huddles the team and they decide on a play. And the point of the play is to deceive the opposition so they can score a touchdown. And I hope that that provides something of an analogy as we look at these next verses, Acts chapter 23, verses 12 to 22. There's a sequence to Paul's or to Luke's thought here, verses uh, 12 and 13. There are plot hatchers. They hatch a plot. This week I've been struggling, and I end up saying that backwards. Platch hotters, sometimes it comes out that way. These are plot hatchers. Um, and then in verses 14 and 15, the plot is communicated to the higher-ups. And then in verses 16 through 18, it's as if the water boy comes along from the other team and he gets a lowdown on what the play is going to be and then he goes to the coach of the other team in verses 19 to 22. And we want to look at those verses in that sequence and when we're through with them we want to ask, well, where does this leave Paul? Where does this leave us? And beyond that we want to ask, what's the picture that Luke is painting in these verses that are before us. So the plot hatters, uh, the plot hatchers. Verses 12 and 13, they can't stand the fact that Paul is still alive. Now you remember last week what happened is the Sanhedrin gathered together. They're going to hear Paul because Claudius Lysias, the Roman uh, commander, he can't figure out why people are so angry with him. And so the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, are about ready to tear him apart. And Claudius intervenes and takes him back to the barracks. Well, 
these Jews. What do we know about them? Not too much. There is speculation from the commentators that these were what were called zealots, meaning they were uh, current-day terrorists. And they were intent on destroying the Roman government. They hated the fact that the Romans were in authority over them. There's some speculation that Judas Iscariot might have been one of those. But all we know is there are a group of Jews that are not part of the Sanhedrin, the ruling body uh, of the Jews, and they conspire together to put Paul to death. Now, here's the play. They take an oath. And the oath is, we are not going to eat, we are not going to drink until we put this guy in the grave. You know how it is with folks that like to spend time in the wilderness, there's a rule of three, three minutes without air, uh, three days without water, uh, three weeks without food. Well, they have really put themselves in a pressure cooker because they're saying, we are not drinking or eating until Paul is dead. And uh, if you liken that to a football play, they huddle together and they know how they're going to score a touchdown. They're going to run the fullback right up the middle of the line and this thing is going to be over. It's not going to take a long time. What is going on with them? They're Jewish boys. They understand about the Ten Commandments. They know that the law says thou shalt not kill. How could they be of this disposition? Well, Luke doesn't really go into those details. And we are not either at this moment. But what we do want to do now is move on from this plot to kill Paul to the next move. They go to the Jewish authorities, to, we're told the high priests and the scribes, and they say, we want you to know we've taken this vow, and we are not going to eat or drink until Paul is dead. That word, we've taken this vow, is an interesting one, and it shows us the utter seriousness of the situation. It's used four places in the New Testament, three in this record, one other place, Mark chapter 14, verse 71. You remember the story, Jesus is on trial, and Paul or Peter is out warming his hands near a fire. And a servant girl comes along, and she says, I know him. I know his accent. He's a Nazarene. And he is in league with this Jesus who's on trial now. And what's Peter's response? He takes a vow. He says, I never knew him. And the same word that's used there is used for these vows that the Jewish men take in Acts 23. It's the Greek word from which we get our English word anathema. And in effect, what they are saying, and what Peter is saying is, I curse myself if I don't do what I've promised. Very serious. So they come to the ruling authorities, the scribes and the chief priests, and it looks like 
This is a segment of the Sanhedrin that doesn't include the Pharisees because, as you remember from last week, the Pharisees were supportive of Paul. So they go to these others and they say, we want you to tell the tribune to bring Paul down. We have more uh, You have more questions that you want to ask of him. And it's a backwards kind of situation. Backwards why? These are normal, run-of-the-mill Jewish men, and they are now giving instruction to the leaders of the Jewish nation. Their job wasn't to lead the nation. Their job was to follow the leaders. And yet they come and they say, we want you to tell the council to meet, and we want you to tell the council to tell the tribune to have the council meet. So that, and then what will happen is, as Paul is coming from the barracks, we will be there and we will kill him. We don't know how that would have happened. There are more than 40 of them. I suppose the presumption was there would be a small contingent of soldiers that bring Paul down, maybe through narrow streets, and they would get the drop on him, and he would be dead. But we want to ask this question. There's nothing in Luke's record either about any reaction from these Jewish leaders. And so we ask the question, what is going on with both these 40-plus Jews that hatched this plot and the religious leaders of the day, the scribes and the high priests? Well, it's not hard uh, to sketch out some answer to that question when we look at what the Bible has to say. In the Old Testament we are told, uh, the wicked are like the troubled sea when it cannot rest, whose waters stir up mire and dirt. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. The wicked are like the troubled sea when it cannot rest, whose waters stir up mire and dirt. There's something in people that moves them in the direction of all kinds of wrongdoing. Jeremiah says a similar thing. Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and incurably sick. There's this propensity to do wrong and then do wrong again and do wrong again, even though we make promises again and again to ourselves and others that we'll do it right. Isn't that the case for you? You make promises, and then you're right back to your old sinful ways. What hope is there for people like that? Jesus says that it's out of the abundance of the heart that the mouth speaks. It's out of the heart that come all kinds of things, including plans to murder. So what hope is there for people? Again, Luke doesn't tell us right here. So that's the play to get across the goal line. We're going to murder Paul. We'll be done with him. And in order to do that, we need the support of these other religious leaders. We need their concurrence in the plan. But enter Paul's nephew. Now, we don't know very much about Paul's family. Um, his nephew, it's his sister's son, at least we know that much. There is some speculation that Paul really suffered for the Lord 
in the book of Philippians, he says, I have lost all things for the sake of Christ. And there's some commentators who think that that loss for Paul was losing his family inheritance because he had chosen to follow Jesus. But we don't know. But what we do know is that the nephew gets wind of this plot. It's like the water boy on the opposing football team intercepting the message about the play that the opponents are going to run. And so what does he do? Well, he goes to the barracks, we're told. And we're now looking at verses 16, 17, and 18. He goes to the barracks where Paul is being kept, and he says that he wants to talk to Paul. There's a question. How would he have been able to have access to the prisoner? Again, commentators tell us this that back then it was often the case that family members were responsible to provide basic necessities to those that were incarcerated. So perhaps that was the case in this uh, situation. Perhaps uh, he could have come just because he wanted to bring something to Paul and under that uh, setting he could have talked to him. Commentators also suggest that that may be how Luke has information to give us this written record. So he comes to the barracks, says, I want to talk to Paul. He says to Paul, here's what's going to happen. Um, the Jews are set out to kill you. And then Jews, uh, Paul turns to one of the centurions and he says, please take this young man to um, the tribune, to the commander. He has something that he wants to tell him. Again, just a sidebar kind of thing. It's interesting uh, about this word, young man. Uh, how old is a young man? We don't know. Uh, maybe he was a teenager. Uh, what I've been able to find is that probably he was somewhere between 20 and 40. That would be young man. Um, so, uh, the centurion takes the nephew to the uh, tribune, to Claudius Lysias, and he says he has something he wants to tell you. We've looked at this point, at this plot, and we've thought to ourselves a little bit about how wicked the human heart is. And we've thought about how the Jews conspire with the religious authorities and it underscores the hopelessness of a person without God. What would ever turn people from this kind of living? Uh, we live in a world where there's lots of violence, don't we? We see it all around us. What will change the situation? Well, I'll tell you what won't change the situation. Having stricter laws doesn't change the situation. Having bigger police forces doesn't change the situation. Because the real issue is down in the human heart. And it then raises the question, what's been going on in your heart lately? Well, we have the plot. We have the sharing of the plot. 
We have the exposure of the plot, and now what's the last section, verses 19 to 22? Paul's nephew comes to the tribune, and he says, I want you to know what's happening here. The Jews have banded together. They've taken an oath that they're going to kill Paul. And then he gives, again, this is a thing that's out of order. He gives the commander some advice. He says, you ought not to be persuaded by them. Uh, how would you like to do that? You go to the authorities and you say, don't do such and such. Well, that's what Paul's nephew does. And so the commander says, well, um, okay, uh, don't tell anybody about this. This is just between you and me. And this section ends. Now, what are we going to do with that? Not a good question. Thank you, Annie. Yes, it's a good question. What are we going to do with this? And uh, here is a related question. Where does this now leave Paul? Where is Paul? Well, interestingly, if you look in your Bible, he is in the same place that he was back in verse 11. Remember what happened at the end last week? As Paul is rescued from what appeared to be certain death, Jesus appears to him, and he says, Paul... Cheer up. Be encouraged. You have testified for me here in Jerusalem. You're going to do the same thing in Rome. Will the Lord's purposes be fulfilled? Or is this just kind of wishful thinking? Paul is in exactly the same place that he was back in verse 11, here in verse 22. He's under the promises of God, in the presence of God, with God's agenda still very much alive and real in his life. Which then takes us to a, similar, to a related question. You know the problems that you have? That you wish would go away? Where are you? If you're a follower of Jesus... You're in the same place Paul was in. You're in the presence of God. You're with the promises of God. God is working his agenda in your life in the middle of those difficulties. And that's to say, then, that the struggles that we face are not the final measure of God's plan for us. He's taking care of us in the most difficult of circumstances. All right, now having said all of that, now we want to go on to think a little bit about the picture that Luke is painting here. What is it? Well, he paints a picture by way of contrast. He is not suggesting, hey, you be like these Jewish men and see how many people you can murder today. He's not suggesting anything like that. He's not suggesting that uh, lawlessness and Disobedience to the Ten Commandments is a good thing. This is a, paint, a painting which comes by way of contrast. And where do we see the painting sketched out in the clearest detail? In the person and work of Jesus. 
What do we know about Jesus? Well, Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. Christmas verses. Unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulders. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and of peace, there shall be no end on the throne of his father David to accomplish that from this time forth and forever. What kind of leader is Jesus? Jesus is a leader who is given to making peace. That's what we learn in Isaiah. How about in the New Testament? Jesus says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give unto you. Not as the world gives, give I unto you. Don't let your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. And Jesus promises to give us of his spirit, which includes the fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, meekness, self-control. That's the kind of leader Jesus is. And so what we can say about Jesus is this. He is a ruler. Isaiah 9, 6 again. He's going to sit on the throne of his father David. He's a ruler who rules by redeeming people. And Jesus is a redeemer who accomplishes his rule by saving people. Does this make sense? I mean, are you with me so far? So where does this take us? If this is the picture that Luke is painting by way of contrast, one where the rule and reign of Christ is in increased um, play in our world, if that's really what's going on, then what's the call of the passage to you? Well, be like Jesus, right? Be somebody who's given to peace. Don't live your life any old way. Live your life for the things that count for God. And those are be a peacemaker. You say, well, where is that in the New Testament? Romans chapter 14, uh, Paul says, give yourself to the things that make for peace. As you think about your interaction with people, what are you doing to promote peace in our world? That's the question here. You want to be like Jesus? Give yourself to things that promote peace. You say, I can't do it. Okay. That's the reason you need a Savior. And Jesus says that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, and peace. So you think about those tension points, and God's call to you is do things that make for peace. Can you think of anything that you could do today that would make for peace? 
My dad was one of 15. Grew up on a small fruit farm in southwestern Michigan. And um, was raised in a German-speaking church of God. I remember going there and not remembering much as my grandparents and my parents and I would worship together there. But my dad was somebody who loved peace. And here's one example. Um, told the story about coming home, uh, leaving, leaving school one day, and some classmate wanted to pick a fight with him. And my dad did not want to fight, and he wasn't given to fighting, and he wasn't a fighter all his life. So what would you do if you had an antagonist coming at you? This is what my dad did. He just backed up. And he kept coming, and dad kept backing. And uh, he backed down the street, and then around the corner. And one of the neighbors, as the story goes, saw them out there and yelled at them to cut it out. And his antagonist kept on coming, and finally they went around one corner, which apparently was too far for the bully, and he turned and went home, and my dad eventually went home. My dad was somebody who was given to making peace. Now, I want to be a peace, I want to be my, like my dad. I want to be a peacemaker, and I get mad sometimes, you know? So you could pray for me in that regard. But I wonder, what can you do to be a peacemaker? And as we think about being a peacemaker, let's also remember that what the Lord requires, he provides. And so as he calls you to be a peacemaker, he's also saying, I'm going to give you of my spirit. You say, how does Jesus give us of his spirit? He's a full service savior. These are the things that he does. First of all, because of Christ's death and resurrection, the Lord relates to us as a just judge. He declares us not guilty, not because we're not guilty. We're guilty as sin. But he declares us not guilty because the righteousness of Christ is imputed to us, put on our record, and we receive it by faith alone. That's one of the ways in which Jesus relates to us. Jesus relates to us in another way. Um, not only are we declared not guilty, but the Lord treats us as an adopting father. We were once aliens. We were once enemies. We were once at war with God. But the Lord draws us to himself with cords of love. He adopts us into his forever family. He says, you are mine. That's your new identity. No matter what you want to tell yourself about who you are, your identity is, I am a new creature in Christ. I am a child of God. All of my past has been forgiven. But then the Lord does something else. He treats us as a uh, judge, not guilty. Treats us as a father adopted into the family. He treats us as a careful surgeon. He takes our hearts of stone and replaces them with hearts of flesh. Ezekiel chapter 36. You can read it for yourself. And so there's no condemnation to those that belong to Christ. And we're enabled by the power of his spirit then to be peacemakers. And so Jesus reminds us of these words from Matthew chapter 5. 
Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Lord, thank you for your word. Bless it to us, we ask, and change us. Help us to be people who are not given to fighting, but are given to making peace. We pray these things in his name. Amen. All right, we have one more song to sing, and the number is... 684. Now, I think this song is going to be a little unfamiliar to you, but it is a great song, so please pay attention to the words and sing them with all the gusto you can muster. <laughs> 